0: Well, what would things look like if Satan took control of a city? Over half a century ago, American Presbyterian Minister Donald Barnhouse asked that question. And he speculated that if Satan took over his city, the city of Philadelphia, he said this. He said, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smile to each other, There would be no swearing, children would be well-behaved and the churches would be full every Sunday. Full where Christ is not preached. What would things look like if Satan took control of a city? Well, Barnhouse says they'd look on the surface perhaps pretty good. Now we might realise that there's an exaggerated point that Barn House is making, but it still stands. It's easy to be distracted from the centrality of Jesus in our world. That He is in fact our only hope. That we are indeed sinners and we do need to be rescued. In our modern world, the measures for life are so often our health and our happiness. Our major problem in our major world in, in our modern world is not our sin, but our lack of fulfillment. In this kind of world, we don't need a redeemer. And so we get distracted from looking to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith. We all do. We live in this world, and we get distracted. And that was the case for the Colossians as well. They lived in a different world with different distractions. But the same reality is in play in the ancient world or in the modern world. And what the Apostle Paul does, and particularly in this section, in verses 24 to 29, is he's wanting to drag back these Christians who are up against a lot, who have been facing um, serious uh, forces and threats. And he wants to drag them, as he drags us back, To the focus of the Christian life, the centrality of who Jesus is and what he's done. Paul's subject for his preaching, for his proclamation, could not be clearer or more simple. It's there in verse 28, him we proclaim. He doesn't proclaim a system. He's not proclaiming a formula. But the Apostle Paul, as he drags his church back to what Christianity is all about, he says... It's a person. And this, I think, is Paul's key point. If Jesus is enough, then we want to speak of him. If he is really great, then we want to speak of how great he is. In the section leading up to verses 24 and verse 29, Paul gives this incredible picture of the greatness of the Lord Jesus. We saw some of this in the last couple of weeks, that the Lord Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the world in verses 15 and 16. He was indeed the purpose of the world, the reason it was created, and he was the redeemer of the world, the inheritor of everything, the head of the church and the reconciler of all things. And the Apostle Paul says that he is supreme over all and over everything. And if he's supreme, he's also sufficient. See, the greatness of the Lord Jesus assures us that he is enough. And if Jesus is enough, then we want to speak of him. We want to proclaim him. What we're going to see this morning uh, really falls out into four sections. We're going to see the price of of proclaiming him, firstly. We're going to see, secondly, the priority in in proclaiming him. Thirdly, the purpose of proclaiming him. And fourthly, the power found from proclaiming him. So, firstly, the price of proclaiming him. The Apostle Paul offers this church, and indeed us this morning, no smooth road as we seek to speak about the Lord Jesus. Have a look there in verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered... For you, and I fill up in my flesh what was, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Apostle Paul here lets them know that he has put himself on the line for them. That he has in fact suffered in the flesh. And these sufferings that the Apostle Paul is speaking of are uh, these physical sufferings that he's endured the attacks the beatings the dangers the riots the imprisonment and why why does he do that what's that curious second bit of verse 24 when it says and I fill up in my flesh what was is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions what is lacking in Christ's sufferings did Jesus not Finish the job? Was his death deficient in some way? Well, Paul often talks about Christian suffering. He says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for him. See, suffering is the reality for those who trust in the Lord Jesus. We don't just believe in him, Paul says, the hand in hand with that is also suffering for him. But there is a difference between the way Jesus suffered when he died for us on the cross and the way we suffer. When the Lord Jesus suffered, he suffered for payment. Our suffering is for propagation, when the Lord Jesus died, he bore our sins. His suffering had this atoning effect, this atoning result. But that's not the case when we suffer. We suffer not for the payment of sin, but for the spread of the gospel and in the spread of the gospel. And we see this throughout Christian history, that there is no advance in the gospel without suffering This is like a a golden rule of the spread of the gospel. And you can see this played out. You can see it played out in the New Testament, in the early century, in the centuries that have followed. There is no advance without cost. And I guess it's not comfortable. It's not comfortable because we don't like that. We want, in many ways, the gospel to go out. Uh, We quite... Like that idea. In fact, we're very passionate about that idea, many of us. But not many of us are passionate about suffering for the gospel. But there is no life apart from death. And we see this in Paul's life. And the suffering that we may endure as Christians is actually part of God's plan. In our suffering, there is a solidarity with the Lord who himself suffered and died for us. And part of that suffering is within the body, the church. The church will suffer as part of this plan. We see this at the very end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, it says, they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord? Holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had, had been completed. See, in that section from Revelation chapter 6, there's this sense that until the number should be complete, that there's this... ...certain kind of quota of sufferings that the people of God will have to endure. This is not unexpected. This is indeed part of the plan. And so we ought not to be surprised when we suffer for the sake of the gospel. But the incredible part here is in verse 24 that as much as the suffering of the Christian is part of the plan... The Apostle Paul really models to us what it's like or how to indeed endure it. He says there in verse 24 that he rejoices. Now, the Apostle Paul is either crazy or there's something for us to learn. How how does he rejoice in the suffering that he endures? Well, I think it's because, quite simply, he loves the Lord Jesus And we know that we are willing to suffer for those that we love. Uh, Some of you know this because you follow South Sydney. But we are, as Christian people, willing to suffer. And in fact, we can rejoice in our suffering because we love the Lord Jesus. And verse 24, it's not just us that suffer, it's are suffering for the sake of his body, which is the church. It's not just for Christ that we suffer. It's for the sake of his body. It's for the sake of the church, because the Lord Jesus loves the church. See, how much is Christ worth to you? And how much is the church worth to you? Because the church is the beneficiary of the sacrifice of the saints. And our sacrifice for the sake of others is is shown here in our example, in the way in which the Lord Jesus has suffered for the church, the way the apostle Paul has suffered for the church, and the way in which we also share in that suffering. And we rejoice in it and it's not hard it's not easy sometimes it's hard it's hard to endure that kind of suffering but let us be joyful and when we accord to suffer may we do it gladly so firstly we see that there is a price in proclaiming him but secondly there's a priority in proclaiming him see what are we actually doing when we speak of the lord jesus Not just here, you know, on a Sunday from this pulpit, but as we speak of the Lord Jesus, as we go about life to our friends and family. What are we actually doing? Well, verses 25 to 28 help us see that there's this priority here. And this is the priority that Paul shows in verse 25. He says, I have become a servant by the commission of God, By the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. In verses 25 to 28, there is a bit of a flow. Uh, We see that there is firstly a stewardship received, a mystery revealed, and an approach to follow. Because Paul is reminding us here that the job of the Christian is first and foremost not to be an expert in world affairs Uh, you know many of us read articles on Facebook and some of us think that uh, when we are read an article on Facebook we're now a world expert in that particular area and we want to offer our opinion because we know how things should be done but first and foremost for us as Christians we don't need to be experts on world affairs it's good to be informed but we don't need to be experts on world affairs, we don't even, in fact, need to be able to deal with every human problem. First and foremost, our job is to speak about Jesus, to speak about him as Lord, to speak about his supremacy over our world, over the situation that we're in throughout COVID and in a pandemic, to speak about his Lordship in the sufferings that we indeed Endure, and Paul knew this because God had given him this job. He's been commissioned by God for this job. In verse twenty-five, now there is a difference between the way the apostle Paul has been commissioned. The apostle Paul has a very unique place in history, but he's speaking to this Colossian church, and he's reminding them what he has begun been given so that they too might follow his example. And so in many ways, the job that Paul has been given is our job too. The imagery that Paul uses here in verse 25 is really helpful because in some ways it's kind of like the imagery of a waiter. You know, when a waiter receives the uh, ding of the bell, he goes to get the meal to deliver to your table. What the waiter does not do is muck around with that dish as he brings it out to the table. If he did, the chef would not be too happy. If he added a little more salt, a little less, a little little more kind of spice, the chef wouldn't be too happy because he doesn't cook it. The waiter delivers it. And that's our job. Our job is to take what we have received. Uh, Philip Jensen speaks... Uh, tells this story about the Mona Lisa. And uh, apparently Mona Lisa has only been out of the Louvre twice to go to Tokyo and New York. And he says, you know, imagine what it would be like to you know, just take the Mona Lisa, just the care that you would need as, you know, the poor guy putting it up on the hook on the wall. What those responsible for transporting the Mona Lisa do not do is they don't look at that painting and they think, oh gee, It's a little bit of a touch-up there, perhaps a little bit of lippy on the Mona Lisa. They don't tweak it. That's not their job. Their job is to showcase it, to put it on display and not to edit it. And that's what the Apostle Paul says his job is there in verse 25. He says, it's to present the word of God to you in all its fullness, to deliver this message without mucking around with it, just this message. It's been given to him. The Apostle Paul didn't make it up. The message we preach is not a message we've made up, it's a message that we deliver. But it's a mystery that's been revealed, and this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in verses 26 to 27, because he goes on very helpfully to tell us that this mystery in verse 26 there has been kept hidden for ages, but it's been now disclosed to Christian people. See, the Apostle Paul is saying that this message that we have is, in fact, this unfolding story. It's a big story about this hero. It's a mystery. It's a mystery not like Sherlock Holmes is, you know, seeking to find out who murdered someone. But it's a mystery in the sense that before Jesus, it was unknown how God would accomplish his his plan. Some of those elements of how God was working in our world were displayed, but the key reality was hidden until Jesus came. The king of glory is also the suffering servant. Uh, Jewish scholars, as they read the book of Isaiah, those two themes still can't make sense of how the king of glory and the suffering servant could be in the one person. See, Apostle Paul tells us that this mystery is this unfolding story that has been revealed, this beautiful story that's been revealed in the Lord Jesus. So what is it? What's this mystery? Verse 27 it's to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. See, the Bible is not fundamentally a book of advice of virtue fundamentally it's not just a you know a bunch of i guess how many people see the bible is look it's you know this collection of teachings that are quite moral and if you can just follow and do what they do then that's what the bible wants you to do that's not what the apostle paul thinks that the word of god is that's not what the apostle paul says that God has been doing. The Apostle Paul says it's about Jesus. And there's a difference from knowing some stories from the Bible and knowing the story of the Bible. And in fact, you can't make sense of the, sto- the stories of the, sorry, uh, you can't make sense of the stories in the Bible without knowing the story of the Bible. And this is a story that we've been caught up in. We Gentiles who were far off, who didn't have the promises of God, we have been included in these promises, in this blessing of the Messiah. We've been grafted in. Their Messiah is now our Messiah. And this Messiah is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Apostle Paul here draws on An intimacy to encourage these Christians. And it's an intimacy that echoes the Exodus, the tabernacle. But he says God is not dwelling in some tent, He's not contained within canvas, but He's here in a person. In the book of Exodus, you know, there's those great stories of God rescuing His people, the plagues through the Red Sea. And so, in many ways, the book of Exodus, well, the book of Exodus is about a God who rescues. You see that in those early chapters, in chapters 1 to 18. And as the people of God move from Egypt toward the promised land, God gives his law. But from chapters 25 to 40, the whole book of Exodus is about the God who dwells, the God who rescues is also the God who dwells. And the book of Exodus finishes with these last couple of sentences. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The book ends with this big cloud and this big tent and God is with his people. So much so that even Moses can't get close to this tent. That's how close God is. It's almost like he's too close as the book of Exodus ends. You know that pool that uh, you might have to cast your minds back? That pool when you've met someone and you just want to be with them? You just want to think about how every moment and minute of your life can be spent with them. It's a desire of intimacy. It's a desire for closeness. And this is what God desires for us and with us. Christ is in you. God has come to dwell by his spirit in you. This is the hope of glory, the apostle says. The indwelling of Christ guarantees the glory to come because he is in you. You can have hope. And so the apostle Paul gives us an approach to follow. He says there in verse 28 that we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. We proclaim him. We we announce the Lord Jesus, literally we announce him like an angel that word proclaim. It's to announce far and wide that a victory has been won. It's not an instruction to be a better person primarily. It's an announcement that a victory has been won and we proclaim him. And we do that in a way that admonishes or warns like a parent. And we teach because there's great things to know about Jesus because you must know about Jesus in order to believe in him. And we don't just do an info dump on people, we do it with all wisdom. We apply the Lord Jesus like a sage or like a counsellor. We see that as the Apostle Paul continues this book. He applies the wisdom of God to life, to marriage, to work, to our relationships in forgiveness. And who needs this? Who needs his wisdom? Verse 28, the Apostle Paul says, everyone. Everyone. This is important in the the Colossian context because there was this group of elitists who looked down on those ordinary, normal Christians. They needed more. But these elitist Christians, they were fine. They looked down because they thought that they were mature. The ones who set themselves up as the mature ones were in fact the fools. And those struggling Christians were in fact the wise. You see, growth in maturity is for everyone. It's not just for some. And the gospel is for everyone, whether you're poor or wealthy, whether you're happy or sad. What do we need? We need Christ because the problem is universal and the solution is too. So there's a priority in proclaiming. There's a price, there's a priority, but there's also a purpose. And that purpose is there in verse 28, that we may present everyone perfect, or the word for, another word for that is mature, some translations have. See as we speak about the Lord Jesus to one another, as Christ is preached, people are saved, but we preach him that they may be matured. Paul will go on in verses in chapter two verses six to seven to speak about continuing in the Lord Jesus. There's, there's no extra bit, there's no secret for the special. It's about continuing in the Lord Jesus that you first received. Him you first receive. You see, we grow as Christians when we grow in how we see the Lord Jesus. The fact that he is with us. The fact that he is for us. We can never tire of hearing about the Lord Jesus. And this is how we change. We actually change from the inside out. Christ is in us and Christ is for us and he's changing us. He's sanctifying us from the inside out as we work out our affections and our mind and as Christ works out into our relationships and into the world that we live in. How do we mature as Christians? We mature by focusing on the Lord Jesus. We'll see more of that next week. Finally, we see the power. The purpose of proclaiming him, the power now found from proclaiming him, because speaking about Jesus in our world is exhausting. But he's not only the subject of what we speak. He's also the source of our power. And this is where we are end, verse 29. To this end, I labour, Paul says. He, he toils. The language there for labour or toiled is um, used outside the New Testament to mean taking a beating. As one writer put it, a weariness that results from being repeatedly struck is that word labour. And that sounds like Christian ministry a lot of the time. And this is important because he says, to this end I labour, I toil struggling. Struggling is the language of the athlete that Paul often um, employs. The Apostle Paul here is saying that Living as a Christian, speaking of Jesus, is extremely hard. It's exhausting like an athlete. It feels like you're taking a beating. It's hard. It's weary work. It's toil. It's a struggle. But we do it with his energy, which so powerfully works within us. You see, it's not about us. Though the work is laborious, It's about Christ's energy, and his energy is limitless. He is enough. He is not only who we speak of, he is the source of how we go about speaking of him. Our strength today, this morning, is not in how long we've been a Christian. Our strength is not in how much we know about the Bible. Our strength is not in how much we do or not do. Our strength is in our union with the Lord Jesus, and we are charged for his work in our communion with him. So we'll speak of him, we'll teach him, we'll warn, and we'll remind one another that Christ is enough, that he energises us, because he is the hope of glory in us. Amen. We're going to pray.